0: So has it ever struck you that Advent is kind of a strange season for the church? See, we spend the month of December looking forward to the birth of our Savior and King, Jesus. So we're done now, but for the last four weeks, we had a time of remembering what it was like looking forward, waiting for the promised Savior, from Genesis to 2 Samuel, to Zephaniah, we spent time in passages that looked forward, anticipating eagerly the coming of God's promised Messiah, the one who would crush the serpent's lie that lives in the heart of all of Adam's descendants. We've seen the promise and the waiting for the one who would rule over God's people as the true king of righteousness and the one who would bring healing to God's broken, sinful, suffering people. But it happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, Doesn't that strike you as strange that we do that? You see, the promised baby, David's son, the seed of Abraham, was born. Christmas is over. The Christmas gifts, right, if you do that, point to the greatest gift of all. They're all open. Celebrations and parties are done at this point. Uh, what are we going to preach about now? What are we going to think about as a people now that the season of anticipating the advent of God's promised Savior, the season of looking forward, is over? Well, I'd like to point out that the season of anticipation, of looking forward with eager anticipation, is not supposed to be over. Um, Even though we usually only spend a month consciously remembering the, what that joyful anticipation was like for God's people throughout history to eagerly await for him, our season of waiting for our promised Savior is not over yet. Because Jesus was born, yes, in a brilliant flash of light that illuminates all of history before and after he was born as a baby. Um, we celebrated that birth of the light of the world last week. If you heard of the Christmas Eve service, Light was what we used to to show that. But then, and, and then the baby went on to grow up and live life as a human man, right? That's what he did. And that life shone a light on. It was the light of God's loving plan for restoring a people to himself. And then his death, his death paid the price of sin to kill the darkness in those people. It paid the price for their rebellion and put his light in their hearts, in our hearts. And then his resurrection declared God's full acceptance of Jesus' work for us. Then, the light of heaven returned to heaven, returned to his Father in heaven, with the promise that he would return again. And that, that is why we are here today cause Jesus the embodiment of the light of God's grace has appeared and he will appear again. Now think about it this way if it helps. God's people before the incarnation of Jesus, his earthly life, they were waiting for a promise they didn't fully understand. They were they were like children whose parents have promised them some really really good news, some great gift or event. And they don't know what it full is, but, but, but they believe that it's going to be something amazing because of the love that their parents have for them and their confidence that their parents will work for their good. Uh, but now, after the incarnation of Jesus, we're like the children that have gotten the good news. Hey, kids, we're going to Disney World. We're putting in a pool. We're getting the dog. Uh, it's, it's not only that, but the tickets have been bought, or the, the contractor's been paid, the deposit's been put down with the breeder, uh, the promised good that we wait for has been revealed, bought, and made a sure thing. Jesus himself, one of the, one, in the, one of the last things he, he told the disciples, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But we have not yet received the full joy of the thing promised. We're not in heaven with God right now. All remaining sinful tendencies cleansed from us. All sad things wiped away. All tears gone. Enjoying the eternal good of being with God in his presence forever. Instead, we're waiting. Waiting for Christ to come back and judge the world and rescue his people for an eternity of happiness with him. But with the waiting for the appearing of the Savior over for the first time, Uh, we, God's people, not Israel anymore, but us, the church, go on to our next stage of waiting. And we do it because Jesus, the embodiment of the light of God's grace, has appeared and will appear again. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage that says how we, the church, are to be waiting for that second advent of our Savior. And before we do, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please be with us today as we look at your word. Lord, we want to be a uh, people who feel the full joy of Christ's work, of what it has done, of what it has accomplished for us, and we want to uh, feel it more. We want to, as we examine your word, as we see these truths, as we see the person of Christ made much of in your word, we want to have our joy made complete. Lord, we want our anticipation to drive our lives to be ones of joyful living for you, of waiting for our Savior um, with hope, uh, with, uh, with knowledge that it isn't futile and that, uh, that, that, that the, the fruit we bear in our lives now has a purpose uh, and draws us closer to you. Lord, we pray that we would see these things in your word, that you would send your spirit to change our hearts We can't drum this up in ourselves, Lord. We need you and we need your work. And we so pray that you would do that in us today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Titus 2, verses 11 through 15, and and then follow along as we consider this passage together. Uh, But before we get too much into the actual passage itself, we need to talk about the context of the passage. See, Paul wrote the letter of Titus To his fellow missionary worker, Titus. Uh, See, Titus was a Greek who converted to Christianity. Um, He worked with Paul throughout much of his ministry, um, uh, you know, planting churches. Uh, In Crete, Paul had left Titus in charge of this young, primarily Gentile church to set things in order after it's been planted, right? To appoint elders, to ensure that right doctrine was being taught, and then to see that the church was actually bearing the fruit of the gospel. And, and now the, the Cretan culture, uh, culture that this church was in the middle of, it was, it was not a good culture. In Titus 1, Paul quotes a native Cretan prophet, is what he calls him, who said that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul affirms this. He agrees with that. Um, some sources say, you know, I was reading that the, the particular flavor of the Greek pantheon worship that was uh, in Crete, it, it admired the lying the promiscuousness, and the get-ahead-by-any-means aspect of the uh, the Greek gods. Um, uh, It was a blatantly, in-your-face, immoral, and not apologizing for it kind of culture. Uh, Maybe not too different from some cultures that we know of. And into this cultural context, there was this church. Uh, This group of people who had seen their need for a savior from God's righteous, just wrath at their sin... Who had seen Jesus, the Jesus preached to them by Paul and Titus and other first century Christians as their answer to that need, and they placed their trust in him. But things were not necessarily healthy at this Christian church. See, after, after Paul affirms the native Christian prophet quote about Christian immorality, uh, Paul gives the instructions to Titus to, uh, to, 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 talk, to talk to his church to say, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And at the end of the letter, he reveals his goal to Titus in the whole letter when he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul does not want a church that knows the truth of the gospel, knows about Jesus, but lives an unfruitful life. He doesn't want a church that, that as he says in verses one uh, chapter 116, professes to know God, but denies him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so much of the body of the letter to Titus is taken up with commands to how the people in this church should live, how they should be fruitful, and how they can be obedient, not detestable, fit for good work, and affirming the work of God in their lives by their work, their lives. In 1, 5-9, it goes into great detail about the life of an elder, an overseer in the church should look like. And in chapter 2, early verses, he goes into detail of what the lives of older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and bond servants should look like, the type of fruit that they should bear. In 3, 1-2, he goes into how Christians should relate to non-legal authorities that God has put over them. And then 3, 9 through 11, he goes into how Titus should deal with people in the church trying to cause problems, the fruit of the gospel in that particularly tricky area. But amidst these commands about how the people of God are to be fruitful, to live in this culture, and to bear fruit in accord with the new lives that belong to Jesus, Paul drops chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And these verses are really, really important. Because of the word that starts them, four. That four means that this section is the reason behind the commands to live a certain way that he gives all throughout the rest of the book. That four means that this section provides the basis for why the church does what it does, why the church lives a certain way, even, even in some senses, why Christianity exists. That four. Let us hang a huge weight of responsibility on these words to define what the people of God, the church, is and what it's going to do. And that's why we're here in this passage in Titus today. Because we, as us, this church, here today in this period of history where God's grace has appeared, The first advent has happened and now we are waiting for the Lord's second advent, his return. And that waiting is not the idle, indifferent waiting of the bored or the fearful, hesitant waiting of the unprepared. Instead, it's the joyful, active waiting of people who are on a great journey before arriving at a joyous destination. And the first thing we do while we're waiting is we declare the grace that has appeared. See, because Jesus, the embodiment of light of God's grace, has appeared and will appear again, we declare the grace that has appeared. To see this, we need to look at the beginning and the end of this short passage, 11 through 15. So in the end, the, the declaring that we do in verse 15, that's pretty obvious, right? You should be able to see that right away. Declare these things. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the only real direct imperative in this short section, and it commands a declaring that's both corrective of wrong and encouraging Of right, rebuking and exhorting. Do you see that? And that's important. We'll come back to that because it's at the end. We'll do it second. Um, Because in the beginning of the passage, it also has something really important to tell us about how the people who have been changed by the appearing of grace, how those people are going to declare that grace. Uh, See, in the beginning of this passage, verse 11, do you see where Paul says what the result is of the grace of God appearing? He says it is bringing salvation for all people. No, he's not saying that every person in all of time and all the world is going to be saved. Uh, that would directly contradict so much of what other scripture has to say about who's going to be saved. It, that can't be what he's saying. Uh, and not only that, but it doesn't make sense in the context of the passage. You See, remember, this is written to Titus working in a church in the in-your-face, immoral culture of Crete. It wasn't that the grace of God and Jesus was going to save every single person in Crete, regardless how they they responded to the gospel. Rather, the point is, the gospel is going to save all kinds of people all over the world, from every culture, from every nation, even those who are as outwardly wicked, seemingly unsavable as the people of Crete. The grace of God that appeared is powerful enough, is effective enough to change and and save even the most proverbially lying, evil, lazy gluttons, the Cretans. Now, the, the gospel of the arrival of grace of Jesus, you know what that means? That means it's not just a gospel for the people who have their act together. It's not just good news for people who are already morally upstanding. It's for my neighbor. It's for my neighbor who lets racist language slip into his conversations. It's for my homosexual cousin, hates, his, hates Christians, wants nothing to do with the church. It's for my kids who fall into this trap that think, that, of thinking they're saved because their behavior is moral. And it's for my kids who rebel against everything I try to tell them. And most of all, most of all, it's for me. The one who, when I spend real time examining my life, knows that I do not love God and Jesus the way I ought, that my affections for him are cold, that my love for others, mostly driven out of concern for appearance, and my idols are constantly rearing their heads demanding worship, and I all too readily give it to them. See, the gospel being for all men, of all men needing the gospel, this is what drives... Just so many of the core values of our church, the ones relating to international missions, raising our children to know Jesus, and church planting. It's the firm biblical conviction that this grace that has appeared in the work and person of Jesus is still going forth. It's not done bringing people to salvation, and we get to be a part of that work by declaring this work to everyone around us, from our kids to our neighbors. To their neighborhoods and to the furthest ends of the world. What about the content of what we are declaring? Well, for that, look at verse 15. When Paul tells Titus to declare these things, what things is he talking about? He's talking about the whole book, right? He's talking about the gospel and the life that accords with that gospel. Paul is telling Titus to teach the truths of the gospel and the life that it leads to. We need to correct wrong doctrine with right doctrine. We need to know our Bible, study theology, and understand God's word. But it isn't dry, dispassionate knowledge about esoteric trivia. It's doctrine that has feet, that has wings. Doctrine that carries our hearts and our minds towards something. We want, to, we want the knowing about God that we do in our church to be like the knowing about a great des- a vacation destination that we're telling our kids about in the car on the way there. See, I don't, I don't just tell my kids about the facts and the figures about how tall this water slide is and the volume that this pool holds, right? It, you know, it's... It, it's what I'm trying to do is I try to raise their affections for the destination. I'm going to talk about how much fun it is going to be sliding from such a great height, and how neat it's going to be to enjoy all the, to all together enjoy the wave pool and, and the foods we'll eat and the fun we'll have together. The de- the declaring is done out of an overflow of affection in order to raise the affections of others. Uh, Think about what Paul is telling Titus here. He's telling him, declare with all authority because as the most mature Christian there, the missionary church planter, Titus is the one who has the most experience knowing God and Jesus and being known by them. Paul is telling him, and by extension, all who are in a relationship of knowing and being known by Jesus, to declare to those around you the goodness, the beauty, the desirability of the destination of your journey that's part of what it means to be a church, to declare that I am, that we are, not just wandering through life, seeking to find happiness wherever it may be found, but that we are on a journey to heaven, to be with our Savior. And I want you to know how good that destination is. And, there, and there's, two, there's more to consider here because Paul uses two words to describe the declaring that Titus and other Christians are to do. It's, the first is to exhort which means to encourage, to spur on. And the second is rebuke, which means to correct and to set right what is wrong. Both are important for a church, a group of Christians living together. If our declaring of Jesus and who he is is always all rebuking of people's wrongs, notions, uh, if our teaching in our church is always an attempt to fix and rebuke wrong ways of thinking, we're only fulfilling half this command. A true declaring of God's work and sharing how his grace has appeared in Jesus is always a work of exhorting, encouraging towards truth, of coming alongside the weak and the struggling, of loving work to motivate and inspire others to see the joy and beauty and wonder of Jesus and life with him. You see, that's, that's why it's so important. This, the core, one of the core values that we have, that, that we believe that coming to faith in Christ and growing in faith is a process. Therefore, our church will be a place where people are warmly accepted and helped no matter where they are at in that process. See, if the process of declaring God's grace to people only ever involves rebuking them, correcting them, or pointing out what's wrong with them, whether it's our kids or our friends or those we minister with, uh, we are ignoring half of Paul's command, failing to understand and live out this core value very likely squashing people's growth. See, I I know no faster way to discourage and dishearten my children than to only ever rebuke them and to never give them an encouraging word. Uh, We need to encourage, exhort, motivate, and inspire those around us to see the beauty of God's grace that has appeared in Christ that requires that we be experiencing, and, and to do that, it requires that we be experiencing the beauty of that grace ourselves. You can't pass on to your children or your unsaved friends and family what you don't possess yourself. And on the other side of of the exhorting, if our declaring of Jesus and who he is, if it never corrects wrong ways of thinking, wrong beliefs and wrong ideas about who he is, what what we will inevitably turn into is, is into people, a people that mirrors the world around us in all of its errors and falsehoods and wrong ideas about God. Instead of our destination being the Jesus of the Bible and our home in heaven with him, we will find ourselves heading to a different Jesus. One who may sound a bit like the Jesus of the Bible, but instead of promising the infinite happiness of knowing him forever in heaven, promises a lesser, fading, temporary joy of earthly pleasures, good feelings, and moral shininess. And see, this is, um, you know, we have newcomers classes going on right now I think those are going on right now. Uh, and it's why those are so important, why membership is so important, whether our church or uh, another church. In um, agreeing to a membership covenant like at our church, is, it's a big deal. In it, we acknowledge that every single one of us needs to be helped and encouraged. And yes, even at times rebuked by God's word carefully handled, and we rely on each other. The other Christians here at this church to do that rebuking as we seek to invite others to hold us accountable to the plain teaching of Scripture and by being responsive to the leadership God has established for the church. It's a big deal. It's serious, important work and we entrust it to those we've entered into this journey around us in this very congregation. So that's our first point. Because Jesus the embodiment of the light of God's grace has appeared and will appear again. We declare the grace that has appeared, but se- and second, we grow in His grace. We grow in His grace. Do you follow? Do you see the logic of the uh, of the first few verses of this passage? It says, "Yes, the grace of God has appeared, and it did something. It brought salvation to all men, but it has something else too." It appeared and is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It is training us to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is training us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this is important, because if the only thing that the appearing of the grace of God did was to bring salvation, that's all it did, and then there really wouldn't, wouldn't be, there would be no reason for the Christians in this Cretan church that Paul's writing to to live any differently than the culture around them. Now, the reasoning would go like this, well, yeah, I'm a sinner who's done thing, but Jesus appeared and paid the penalty for my sins and earned me a place in heaven as God's child, so now I don't need to worry about how I live in this present age. Now I eat, drink, and be merry. Let's continue to sin that, so that grace may abound, right? Jesus as my afterlife insurance policy. And isn't that so much, uh, how so much of our culture thinks about Christianity? I prayed a prayer, accepting Jesus into my heart, so now I'm going to heaven. Or uh, about this one, I, I don't need to worry about that particular sin because I'm sure God will forgive me for it. Or, or maybe even more dangerous for the more uh, theologically subtle among us, uh, I know I struggle with this sin, but since my sanctification is in God's hands, I'm just a fallible human. I'll need to wait for his timing to be rid of it. My salvation doesn't hinge on my efforts, so it'd be arrogant of me to think I bear too much responsibility to kill the sin that lives in me in this present age. See, that's that's not how the Bible talks about the effect of, of the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus. It talks about its effect as training us of changing us over time from one thing into another thing, of disciplining us as people so that we become unlike who we were and more like something, like someone else, like Jesus. See, growth, discipline, maturing, and development as a Christian, they're not optional things for some select group of super-Christians. They're the natural effect of God's grace in all his people to whom Christ has appeared as their savior. So what does this look like? What does it look like for you and me? Well, for each of us, it's it's gonna be different because each of us have passions for different worldly things, right? So for those of us, maybe our passion is for worldly comfort and ease, or our worldly passion is for comfort and ease. Over time, The training of God's grace will change us so that instead of demanding that nothing ever inconvenience me, that nothing infringe on my free time or my leisure or my video games or my Netflix, we gladly embrace the discipline required for this journey to heaven. A discipline that requires that we spend time each day putting down our phones and picking up our Bibles. A discipline that requires us to turn off the TV and have a deep conversation with our spouse or our children. A discipline that refuses to solve problems in my family the easy way, by imposing my will or by sitting my kids in front of a screen, but instead displays Christ's love, mercy, and grace to my wife and kids in service that sacrifices my comfort and ease and takes work and self-control and discipline on my part. Or just as another example, how, this, how the, the worldly passions, uh, the, for those of us whose worldly passions, having people think well of us, never have any conflict, never get on anyone, anyone's bad side, the training of God's grace might change us so that we can say hard things in loving ways that help others know Jesus better. It'll change my desire to be a people pleaser into a desire to be a Jesus pleaser. So instead of making sure my kids like me and always think of me as their best friend, I can act in their eternal interest by disciplining them in ways to train them for godliness, even when it's hard and even when it makes them not like me. The, The training of God's grace trains me to place a higher priority on raising my kids to know him than I do on making sure they are entertained and enjoying themselves all the time. See, as we think about growth, as we think about what it means to grow in the grace of God that has appeared, I think it's, it's, I've said it a couple times now, but I think it's worth mentioning that word self-control. And in in the the Greek that it was written in, that word sophronos, Paul uses it like six times in this book, six times. And he uses it to talk about the elders, the men, the women, the older men, the younger women, the, the goal of the Christian life. Uh, You know, and I think the reason he uses it so often is because this Christian church was fine with the idea that God had done something for them, uh, but they needed help seeing that there was now something that they, the selves, needed to be doing. Uh, You know, it's, I think self-control captures better than any other word the idea that you are involved with controlling the self that has been brought to life by Christ. Uh, The Christian walk isn't us being puppets while God yanks the strings, uh, makes us walking towards heaven, right? Uh, Right right after this text, Titus in verse 3-5, he reminds us, he saved us, not because of works we've done, uh, done by us and righteousness, but according to his own mercy, right? No, it leaves no illusions that you are responsible for your own salvation. But, but so much of the book, uh, uh, while God's work matters first and foremost, but here in this, this text, Paul wants us to remember there is work to be done, discipline that is required, and self-control to be exercised. You need to be self-controlled to do the things that are the evidence of God's grace appearing to you. You need to have a plan to be in God's word and prayer daily. And then you need to follow through on that plan. You need to work at raising your kids to know Jesus instead of letting them float through life. You know, this is the temptation for me just as much as everybody else. To let them float through life, being raised by entertainment. Uh, We need to spend time thinking about how we still need to grow and make a plan to grow in those ways? How can I learn about the doctrines I only loosely grasp? How can I avoid the situations where I know I still struggle with a certain sin? How can I remain accountable to another Christian so I can work on an area of my life that I know I struggle in? And that last one's important because we need to remember none of this, none of this can be done on our own. There's work to do, there's self-controlled exercise, but none of it is done in isolation. It's meant to be done together. We need the grace of God that he gives to us through one another. And so one means God uses to provide that grace in our church family is growth groups. So so our church, if you want to grow, you need to sign up for one this next session, right? If 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 you want to be walking closely with other Christians to do the one anotherings of Scripture, that's just part of how we structure our church. And it may make it difficult to grow as a Christian if you want to do it another way. And so by God's grace, doing these things, these things will be an effective means of more of God's grace showing up in your life. So what happens? You grow. You grow in God's grace. I trust that for many, many of us, God's grace has appeared to us. It's changed our hearts, awakened in us an affection for Jesus, and a distaste for the things of this world that were our idols before that light of grace appeared. And now we need to be actively participating in the work of growing, of examining our lives for that growth, and encouraging each other in that growth. So, Jesus, the embodiment of the light of God's grace, has appeared, and he will appear again. So first, we declare the grace that has appeared Second, we grow in his grace. And third, we serve with grace and by grace. We serve with grace and by grace. This last point is what verse 14 is about. See, right right after Paul has described the result of God's grace in his people's lives, the waiting lives we now grow into as self-controlled, upright and godly people, he describes what it is we're waiting for. Excuse me, and how that thing we're waiting for compels us to love and serve God and people. He says that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? That's what the passage says. And in other words, we're living in this waiting, growing, grace-filled way for someone specific who has done something to us for a purpose. That someone is Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity. The thing he has done is to redeem us from all lawlessness. Right? We were in slavery to sin, and he paid the price to redeem us, to purchase us out of that slavery. And he purified us, made us clean, washed away the guilt that clung to us like filthy mud. And he did so, and the reason he did it was to make us his own special chosen people. His loved ones, his sons and his daughters who live in his family, and are zealous now, not for the worldly things that we loved before, but we're now zealous for good works, for godly works, Christ-like works. You see, the work that Christ did to make us like himself is now the work of that we do, he sacrificed himself for the ones he loved. He humbled himself, he gave himself. And now that he's transformed us, his church, into purified members of his family, we do the same out of our love for our savior and a desire to be like him, the one we love. We give of ourselves. That's the point of verse 14. We're not zealous for good works so that God will like us. We're not zealous for good works so that others will like us or think we're good people. We're zealous for good works because our great God and Savior did a good work for us. And he did that work when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, when we couldn't repay it, and when we weren't even grateful for it. So much of the rest of Titus is Paul talking about the conduct of believer Conduct toward other believers, conduct within families, conduct towards non-believers. And this verse 14 is telling us that the governing principle of that conduct, the thing that leads to sober-minded, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, pure lives, and all the other outward signs of a life that has been changed by Jesus the thing that is the governing principle of giving ourselves like Jesus uh, is that of giving ourselves like Jesus gave himself for us. And what's kind of scary, is it is possible to fake this. It's possible to be a person who appears upright, godly, disciplined, self-controlled, but only ever live this way because of what it gets me, uh, not because I want to be like my Savior. See, whether it's the the money I put into the offering plate so all will see my generosity or the uh, the gallant way I treat my wife so that all will know and admire what a servant husband I am uh, or uh, the way I raise my kids to be moral, upright people so that all will see what a godly parent I am, it is very possible to fake this kind of sacrificial life. But it's when no one sees my love for my wife, including her, It's when no one knows that I gave to the church, when no one can tell what kind of parent I'm being. This is when I will know whether I'm living, loving, and serving others like Jesus did or only doing it for myself. Uh, When my love is not appreciated by others, when my sacrifice gets no applause, and when my efforts go unvalued by man. And you know, we should be, we should... Take it, realize that, right? For me, for maybe, hopefully maybe for you, it's when I see my sin, my weakness, and my need for Jesus the most. It's at those moments, uh, I find my heart welling up with anger and resentment, and I realize that, well, yeah, a lot of my good works, they're, just, they're still just filthy rags, even after I've been purified and cleansed by Jesus, and that is why we need Jesus. Our hearts are factories that produce idols, and without His cleansing work, without His redeeming mercy, that's where we'd stay. Uh, But because of His work, because of His mercy, that's not where we are or where we will remain. Instead, not perfectly, but more and more, we are people who want to joyfully sacrifice time and treasure because we love to support the work of the church We're a people who instead of needing to get attention and respect for our service to others, we help those most in need and who no one else will ever know that we helped. Instead of making sure our spouses know that we make sacrifices to love them, we joyfully suffer inconvenience and hardship to love them as Christ loves the church without demanding appreciation. See, I see. I might still be doing those things to feed my ego or feed my sense of self-worth, but by God's grace and mercy, and relying on Jesus' help, and humbly realizing our own sin, we will live lives that show not our goodness but our Savior's goodness. And uh, it's also worth mentioning. I've I've mentioned a, a lot of stuff to do up to this point. Uh, Do this, do that, live this way. And I firmly believe there there are few things more discouraging than a sermon that has a laundry list of stuff for you to do. Uh, Stuff for you to feel bad and guilty about that you are not doing or works for you to pat yourself on the back that you are getting checked off the list. And I I don't want today's sermon to feel like that. Uh, but, the, but the reality is, Paul wrote this letter to Titus at church at this church to encourage and to exhort and to command them to be fruitful. And we also, we need to be spurred on to fruitfulness. And so I'd encourage you, if you, if you feel like what I've been saying today uh, weighs a heavy weight of obligation being laid on you, remember, maybe none of the specific applications that I've mentioned fits your life. Uh, but maybe there are other ways that God is calling you to be fruitful. Uh, God isn't necessarily calling you to grow and serve in one specific way, but in a multitude of ways. In our church, we do try to offer, uh, offer ways of growing and serving that we think work well, and so we have things like intergenerational ministry to have the kids grow with us and growth groups so we can meet together and service and outreach teams so we can organize the way that we serve. But one of the reasons we avoid as a church a host of programs and services and things to do and things to be at is that we believe that seeking to grow and serve need to come from a love for your Savior and and our, our Savior and that the opportunities to grow and serve are all around you in your everyday life. Growing in your love for Jesus isn't something that you just do on Sundays In special church events or while listening to a sermon, it's something you choose to do or not do every day. Choosing to lay down the right to be served by others in order to give of yourself to serve others is something you can decide to do on a daily basis, living your everyday, ordinary life with the people that you live and see on a regular basis. And that reality, that fact that this life of growing and serving is not a laundry list of stuff to do, but a life to live, I think that realization does two things. One, it disabuses us of any notions that we might have that we got this. We don't. You and I cannot live this way on our own, uh, always growing in the grace of God the way we should and always serving others the way we should. But Jesus did, and Jesus he does. He does have it. It's only through His grace and relying on Him that I can approach this life. And second thing that that realization does is it takes the guilt away that's produced by laundry lists. You, you, you see, you don't, you don't need to go to every service and outreach event. Your family, you should go to some, you don't need to go to everyone. Your family can miss some growth groups because your life of service for Jesus isn't about checking off the boxes of being there for stuff. It's about loving others and serving them out of a desire to be like your Savior. So you show up for stuff because that's where the others are that you love and you love to serve. But the focus was never on the thing. It's on the opportunities that God is giving of me to give of myself. This loving, sacrificial service like our Savior in verse 14 and the growing, anticipating waiting we see in verses 12 and 13, they're not two separate things they are the same thing. They are the Christian life lived and oftentimes lived together. Nor are they separate from the declaring of the reasons that we do these things. God's grace to us, right? They're all tied together in the lived lives of God's people in us, the church. See, we're about to launch into a yearly Thing we do every year, the Church Improvement Series, uh, you know, where we, we get into the things that we do and that we value and that we want to accomplish as a church, that we need, we, we need to be well-grounded in who we are before we do that. And this is who we are. We are a people who have seen the appearing of Jesus, the embodiment of the light of God's grace. He's appeared and he will appear again. So we declare the grace that has appeared while we are growing in that grace and we serve in that grace. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please make us this kind of people. Lord, do the work in our hearts needed to kill the love for all the idols that that we set our hearts on and set our hearts on Jesus, raising us affection for him that overwhelms all other earthly affections. Lord, we know that you are the treasure of ultimate worth. We wanna seek you. Uh, Lord, we pray that the work that we do as a church of declaring and growing and serving together, that we would enter into this work, uh, that we would be a faithful, fruitful church as we look at this new year coming, Lord. We pray that you would make us that, that we would rely on you in grace. uh, Lord, that we would trust you to do these things for us.